With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Daniel Jigger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, come by the dispatch.com to check out our wares and kick the tires as it were, and you know the rest of the spiel. So I, I, I will save my apologies and explanations for my sudden departure from uh, the world last week and get straight to our guest. I should say, in part because of my travels, I couldn't oversee the booking process, and I know a lot of people wanted us to book... Uh, football curmudgeon we couldn't get him and then there was of course um dyspeptic golf pro um and that that fell through so we had to fall back on one of the time-honored favorites and a first-time remnant appearance with baseball crank aka dan mclaughlin who's a senior writer at um at my old haunting grounds at national review and was a famous uh blogger back in the day under the moniker baseball crank and um, we are some of the people who go back to the Pleistocene era of blogging um, back when people didn't talk about blogging as if it were the digital equivalent of eight track tapes. So with all of that, Dan, welcome to The Remnant. Glad to be here. Yeah, I think I think actually the first political thing that I ever had published on the web was like an anonymous anonymized you know, email that I wrote into you that got published in the corner as a reader email. So. Uh, that going back really to the uh, the antiquated days. Those were the days. I mean, I I, I, I don't want to do it as an aggr- self-aggrandizing thing, but it'd be fun to go back and look at all the people who started out, who got the writer's bug a little bit. I mean, you had the bug, but who started out being anonymous people writing into me at the corner, and I would post their emails on the corner. All, all those military guys, I think, started blogs, and you know, Jack Dunphy's a little different, but uh, um. Who knew those were the simpler times? Um, all right, so uh, we're recording this on Tuesday morning, and um, I watched the first, the first couple, uh, the first, the opening of the the first speeches of the January sixth commission that opened this morning, and I saw some of the GOP pre-spinning of it. Um, and we should probably level set and say that you were one of the most passionate advocates for impeaching donald trump because of january 6 i i don't want to get this wrong but i feel like maybe you were a little more ambivalent about the commission um so but i, I won't put words in your mouth uh what do you what do you make about how january 6 has played out um from from january 6 through impeachment to where we are right now yeah i mean i think uh i mean first of all it- Totally unsurprisingly, uh, the House in particular has devolved into completely partisan and nothing but partisan uh, takes on everything. 
uh, which is sort of how the house was designed and how the house is. I mean, this is this has been a problem in the house since the 1790s, so it's not new. Um, you know, I, I mean, my view certainly at the time, first of all, was that, um, you know, Trump was was very much responsible for this and, and responsible not only because he, uh, you know, because of the speech. Right. And, and people try to say, well, wait a minute, you know, some of these guys showed up with, uh, you know, the people who showed up with like bear spray and grappling hooks and stuff like that. Like, they, you know, um, it, it sort of reminded me of of um, the great baseball story in the seventh game of the World Series in 1934, which kind of erupted into something of a, a riot in Detroit. And people were throwing rotten fruit and like car parts and stuff at the uh, <laughs> at the St. Louis Cardinals. And Joe Medwick said after the game, he's the. the Hall of Fame outfielder for the Cardinals. He's like, I know why they were throwing that stuff. I just don't know why they brought it to the ballpark to begin with. <laughs> um, and 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 so, you know, I think people looked at that and said, well, wait a minute, Trump can't have incited this because these people, you know, the people who really were the real rioters, right? Not just the people who kind of wandered into the Capitol uh, unwisely, but but the folks who who really went looking for trouble, they were looking for trouble already, right? But but I don't think that gets Trump off the hook, because I think if you look at the whole course of conduct uh, that led up to this, right, the the, you know, falsely claiming that the election was stolen, uh, contesting it through every legal and uh, extra legal process, right, attempting to go through the state legislatures uh, when that was not legally po- uh, proper, um, you know, attempting to pressure uh, the vice president um, you know, he continued this this drumbeat. Uh, he he went outside of the proper legal legal channels for contesting it, and then he went out of his way to focus attention on the point of vul- physical vulnerability when the vice president and the whole Congress would be there. You know, in an event that is normally not a big deal, but that that they're all physically there, and it is exactly the sort of thing that that the founding fathers were worried about. I mean, why they created a, a the District of Columbia in the first place, right, was because they had seen uh, mobs surrounding the Congress in Philadelphia, and they felt that there ought to be adequate defenses for the Capitol. Um, and so I think Trump very much bore responsibility for that and, and should have been held responsible. I mean, he was impeached, so it's not that he was not held totally responsible at all, but, um, you know, and, and, and he got more votes against him in the trial to convict then you know, all other presidents in history have gotten from their own party, right? No, I mean, no democratic Senator in American history has ever voted to remove a democratic president from office. So, it, you know, I think, uh, uh, we're on uncharted ground already with Trump. Um, but you know, I mean, that being said, the thing about the commission is, okay, I think but, have, but just before you go on with that, just two quick points on that one. Um, and I know I premised the question by saying, starting with the events of January 6th, but, it's worth pointing out that he laid down the rhetorical and psychological groundwork way in advance of the election, right? He basically said in one way or another a dozen times, if I don't win, it's because the thing will be rigged. If all a whole bunch of late votes come in that don't go for me, it's because this late, this, this absentee stuff is bad and crooked and corrupt and blah, 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 blah. So by the time he even gets to that election night thing where he, you know, he planned to, to claim victory and, and, and couldn't do it the way he wanted to because Arizona, Fox called Arizona and whatnot, he had already been drying that kindling for months when he was still a non-lame duck president, right? And, um, 
And the only other point is for, because I know you don't oppose historical nerdery. I think the other thing other than Philadelphia that was in the founder's mind was um, going back to Rome, the idea that you couldn't have, you didn't want one guy being able to bring in soldiers past the Rubicon into the city. Otherwise the Senate could just get, you know, mobbed. And that was the whole point of, you know, the, 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 the founders who looked at the classics or the ancients were worried about Caesarism. And, and to me, this smacked of a sort of bloody toga twirling kind of Caesarism um, on January 6th. Anyway, sorry to interrupt, but I didn't want to like go too far afield without getting that. In. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of laying the groundwork, I, I mean, before the election and, 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 and this is where I will note that, I mean, Trump wasn't the only one doing this. I mean, there were definitely people on the left who were doing the whole, I mean, there was a lot of punditry on the left in particular saying, look, you know, the only way Trump can win this is if it's it's stolen. Right. So there was there was going to be that anyway. But but obviously Trump was uniquely bad. Uh, you know, Biden wasn't doing that. Um, and, and Trump did it in 2016 and he did it in the primaries in 2016. I mean, he basically said, you know, uh, I mean, he claimed that that the Iowa caucus had been stolen from him by a deal between Ted Cruz and Ben Carson. Uh, he claimed that that, you know, that the system was rigged when they held, uh, you know, like conventions in some of the Western states, even though that had been planned long before they knew Trump was going to be running. So it's just it's just who he is. He doesn't he doesn't accept defeat as legitimate. Um, and uh, but I mean, as far as the thing about the commission is, you know, I think you have to step back and ask what a commission is for and what a congressional committee is for. Um, cause I really think, I mean, my quarrel with the Democrats on a lot of this stuff is that I think, and, and, and with kind of the, you know, their media, if you will, the, the mainstream media included, um, is that they have this idea that commissions, you know, it's like commissions are like science, capital S science, right? That they're, they're there to pronounce conclusions. Um, and I think that there, you know, and there is some role for that if you have a truly detached expert commission, on some technical issue or something, but, but by and large, I think the goal of, of any investigation, any public investigation should be to gather and lay out the facts. And that's more important than the conclusions, right? Conclusions maybe can be important if you've got, you know, like a commission on like base closings, right? Like we've decided, we've examined this and decided that base X, Y, and Z are the ones that are least useful, you know, we're making uh, public recommendations. But I think if you're doing a past investigation, I think the main thing is to lay out the facts. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I thought that that ultimately should have been important to, you know, whether it's like the Mueller investigation, the star report, things like that. It's what matters is laying out the facts for the public. And, you know, as far as like Trump's responsibility for January 6th, I kind of feel like we already know that, you know, like that's all matters of public record. We don't need some bipartisan commission to like, you know, wave the magic hands over this and announce as a conclusion that Donald Trump uh, is res morally responsible. That, that's kind of what the Senate was supposed to do. Um, and, and it was their job. Um, but, you know, I, it, so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical of the commission concept. Uh, that said, I think there are some things that a commission could do that maybe a congressional hearing might have had more trouble doing. Um, you know, and, and, and some of that is, you know, investigating the Capitol police, um, and investigating, you know, whether members of Congress had any kind of advanced responsibility, uh, for, 
you know, letting people into the building ahead of time, that kind of thing. Um, but I think holding people responsible for public political conduct is not the proper role of, a, a, you know, a, a, an extra congressional committee. Yeah, I, I mean, fair enough. I mean, this is, I mean, I disagree in part, but I, I, I think you and I would both agree that Nancy Pelosi handled the impeachment badly. Republicans handled the impeachment badly. The Senate didn't seem much, I mean, it totally freaked out when they almost succeeded in, in treating it like a real trial and having um, witnesses. And then they're like, oh my gosh, what are we doing here? And um, and so we are downstream of a lot of mistakes that were made earlier in the pipeline that are baked in now. That said, you know, I would have favored this 9-11 style commission thing that they were talking about doing. I think my only complaint on that front is, is all these people talk, I mean, I hear it every half hour when you're watching cable news, how the 9-11 commission was the gold standard and it was nonpartisan. It's like, I, we covered that stuff for NR. I mean, it was cantankerous, bitterly partisan. Jamie Gorelick was carrying more water for the Clintons than Gunga Din. And, you know, this idea that somehow it was this wonderfully, you know, sober and serious thing is just, just isn't true if you actually watched them at the time. And, um, but that being said, I, 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 I just, and I, I know a lot, I have a lot of friends who say the same thing that, that we already know what Trump's role was in all of this. Um, but I just don't know that that's true. I mean, just what yesterday, the day before there was a report about how there were these millions of dollars that went to various groups that helped organize the, the rallies. Um, you know, there's a reason why that, that schmuck Ali Alexander went to ground to go hide because he, I think he was up to something and he at least claims to have helped orchestrate all of this stuff. And the congressmen that he claims to have worked with all deny it, but I'd like to know what the truth of that is. And you know, and, and you know this, I mean, in, in, in real life, you know, you're a lawyer type person, the, you know, even, first of all, you never know what you're going to discover when you start investigating things. But even if, even if you're right, which I think is a perfectly plausible position that we basically know what Trump did, which is he watched TV and refused, um, entreaties from friends and family and staff to, uh, try to call this thing off, which is outrageous. Um, and I think entirely impeachable. Uh, as dereliction of duty, uh, but getting a, setting up a public record for these kinds of things, I think, is important. Cle you know, making it getting people to say these things under oath or to refuse to say these things under oath is is important. I don't know where this DOJ decision is going to take us. Um, just for clarity, this morning the DOJ ruled that members of the Trump administration can testify at this hearing, um, which will obviously lead to court challenges, um, but. I th I personally every time I watch one of those videos of the January sixth thing, and then or when I hear that Bandersnatch was Banks talking about how this was no different than a tourist visit when there's a video of him trying to barricade the door from marauders, um, the idea of letting these people off the hook with this gaslighting nonsense um, really sticks in my craw. And so I guess I'm much more on Team Cheney on all of this that I think we should you know dot every I, uncover every rock, and and mangle every metaphor. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, yeah, I mean, when I was looking back over the 
the membership of the 9-11 Commission. I mean, uh, Gorlick's participation was particularly egregious because she was actually one of the people being investigated. But um, I mean, as far as Trump's involvement, I, I'll agree with you on the point that I mean, yeah, I, th I think that Trump's Trump's involvement in kind of inciting the whole thing in advance, I think, is uh is sort of redundant to investigate, but I, I do agree that that his role during the events is something that should have been more adequately investigated in the impeachment, and and still should be. Um, I mean, I, I I think a commission can be useful for a kind of clear the air thing. I honestly thought that we should have had like an outside commission of that sort, both for the you know Russia collusion stuff in 2016 and for the stolen election stuff this time around. Uh, I mean, I think it was a terrible mistake in, in the Mueller investigation to turn this into, you know, a, a secret criminal probe instead of trying to do something that cleared the air. But but that that that, you know, that's part of the overall acceleration of these things where everybody on both sides now has these bloody shirts they want to wave instead of, you know, instead of getting to the bottom uh, of things and establishing things in a in a, in a record that is, you know, that is accessible, that can be poured over and, and judged by the voters. So, um, switch gears slightly, but I'll, I'll figure out, uh, I, I'll make a transition that if I weren't revealing that I was making a transition would seem seamless. Um, cause I want to talk about the state of the GOP and conservatism's relationship with it. Um, uh, I don't know if it was yesterday or this morning, but I heard this soundbite from Kevin McCarthy this morning that um, he was asked about the um, uh, the presence of Lynn Cheney and um, I mean Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger on the panel, and he had some juvenile response about who you know, oh the Pelosi Republicans or something like that. And I mean, I, I mean, if you want to defend McCarthy's juvenilia, I'm happy to have that discussion. But I think it does illuminate something sort of deeper, which is that by by any stretch of the imagination, a, a Liz Cheney is a National Review Republican. It is a I think 95% ACU ACU rating. Although um, I don't put a lot of stock in the ACU, but historically the, these days, but historically that means something. I think everybody who knows who she is knows that she's a conservative. I mean, they may disagree with their own foreign policy stuff, blah, 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 but she's a conservative. She's from the most pro-Trump state in the union, basically. And she's taking this stuff seriously. And the upshot of McCarthy's, you know, taunt is that uh, you're not a real Republican if you aren't on board defending Trump, Trump's behavior, or the re Republican opposition to an investigation into these things. And it seems to me that, and I don't, I don't can't imagine you disagree, that as a conservative, one can come down on any side of these things and still remain a conservative. Um, one may be wrong or right, but, uh, you know, it's like there is nothing in Russell Kirk or Friedrich Hayek or Edmund Burke or, or, or Michael Oakshot, go down William F. Buckley, that says... You have to be part of Kevin McCarthy's you know, political strategy going into the 2022 midterms to qualify as a conservative. It may be to qualify as a Republican these days, but that's a that's a completely different litmus test. And it, to me, it sort of highlights one of the most frustrating problems I have these days, which is that a lot of people think that being 
a loyal Republican water carrier is synonymous with being a real conservative, where I'm not saying the, the twain never meet, but they're just completely different metrics and different considerations. How do you, you know, because you'll often come to the aid, not to the aid, but you'll often defend a lot of the GOP hardball stuff. I don't think it makes you, I, I don't, I'm not, I mean, I may disagree again from time to time, but I, I think it's all done in good faith and all of that. Um, but where, where do you draw these lines? I mean, where, do, you know, how do you adjudicate the conflict and the tension between being a conservative and being a Republican? Yeah. And, and I mean, look, and I can understand McCarthy sort of venting like that about Kinzinger in a sense, because you just never, ever see or hear of Kinzinger on anything other than beating up Trump. Um, I mean, I think he's, I think Kinzinger has been right on a lot of that stuff, obviously, but, um, but yeah, I mean, Liz Cheney, I mean, it, that was the whole thing with, you know, I mean, if you compared her actual record to the record of Elise Stefanik, I mean, it's very obvious that, that she's, she's more conservative than Stefanik, uh, you know, across the board on, on a great many issues. Um, and I think, so, you know, some of the MAGA folks kind of, they turn the, they, they sort of turn that by saying, but, oh, but she's, you know, she's like a, you know, foreign policy hawk and that makes her a left winger. Right. Uh, which, which is just hilarious to me having lived through, you know, the years before 2016. Um, I mean, it's just, it, it, it is just sort of bizarre how much, because it, it, frankly, I mean, I know some of the, some of the MAGA folks on this are genuinely sincere and people who have long-standing kind of Ron Paulish foreign policy views, but but an awful lot of the very vocal people who are on Team Trump are, are people who were, you know, just as vocally on Team W back in the day. Uh, and and you know, it, it's not always easy to square those things. But um, but look, I think uh, I mean I I, I I even understood to a certain extent why McCarthy felt. Ultimately, that if Cheney wasn't going to stop talking about this, that she needed to not be in leadership anymore. Uh, I mean, my view on that was kind of the House Republicans get the leadership they deserve, in a sense, that that their leadership reflects who they are. I mean, I, I, I have a very low opinion of McCarthy. I think he's I think he's adequate to, you know, be sort of a, a cog in the machine. And and if you have a strong Republican president, you can have a Republican you know, house leader who is just a cog because his job is to get things done. Um, but I, I mean, McCarthy is not a guy with any kind of leadership vision uh, of any sort, other than just, I go where my caucus, you know, there go the people and I must follow them for I am their leader kind of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I mean, look, I think the Democrats have been um, irretrievably lost from the American system, uh, and, and for, you know, since, uh, 1912. Um, and, and, and so, you know, because the Democrats are a lost cause in terms of not just policy, but the entire sort of constitutional structure, I think as a conservative, you have no choice, but to work within the Republican party and to attempt to keep it, uh, both successful and sane and ideally both at the same time. Um, uh, but there's no question there's, there's, there's a real tension, but in, in some of the stuff that, you know, that McCarthy in particular, I think it is definitely worse than the house. Um, 
you know, because you have more people who are elected from districts that don't need to compete statewide uh, and because of the leadership. I mean, I think Mitch McConnell, you know, I mean, Mitch was more than happy to do business with Trump uh, and to say nice things about Trump when he needed to say nice things about Trump. But I think it's also clear that he has, uh, you know, he does have a set of principles. They're not always principles. I agree with I mean, He's not a small government guy. He has never been a small government guy. I mean, I remember back in the early 2010s, like when I was writing at Red State with uh, Eric Erickson and, you know, we kind of thought of, I mean, it's sort of naive in a sense in retrospect, but, you know, we kind of thought of Mitch as the real problem at the time, right? Because he was the guy who was sort of against a lot of what the Tea Party wanted to do in terms of uh, real small government conservatism. Um, question but, on that. You know, one question on that because I, I kind of I have very complicated views about Mitch McConnell, but I agree he's a grown up compared to McCarthy. Um, um, do you think he was? I mean, I guess you're. I guess I think you're right about the him not being a small government guy and all that. But do you think his opposition to the Tea Party stuff was had? adhere to any different calculation than his his relationship to Trump, which is that whatever maximizes my Senate membership is good, and this Tea Party thing might not do it? I mean, or do you think it was actually from some sort of political philosophy, some political conviction of some kind um, on his part? I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think McConnell, frankly, always thought that cutting government was a vote loser. Mm-hmm. Um, sort of like look, Bob Dole. Yeah, and and I think he was. I mean, ultimately, he was pretty successful in co-opting a lot of the Tea Party people. I mean, he certainly made his peace uh, with Rand Paul and then some, uh, as you know, as his fellow Kentucky, because he was bitterly opposed to Paul in the primary. Um, you know, and he was against, uh, you know, people like Ted Cruz and and Marco Rubio in the primaries. I mean, I guess kind of everybody still against Ted Cruz on some <laughs> level. At least everybody who works with him in the Senate. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, yeah, I, I mean, I think it was, it was partially, and, and McConnell had a point certainly that, that some of the Tea Party rebels, uh, delayed them taking over the Senate, right? That there were a couple of key Senate races that they just, they just blew. The uh, witch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think it's a little unfair to blame the Tea Party for all of those, you know, like Todd Aiken was not a Tea Party guy at all. Um, you know, and, and, and there were some races that were blown by people who were, who were not Tea Party people. Um, you know, I think Richard Murdoch's loss was, was in good part a a matter of, um, sour grapes by Dick Lugar, um, undermining things, but there's a long story there, but yeah, I think, uh, I do think ultimately though, that, that Mitch is a grown up, he's a serious leader. Uh, he at least has things that he believes and believes in. Um, and you know, and, ha- and, and knows how to control his caucus. And I mean, what frustrates, I think, conservatives when McConnell doesn't do the things we want is that we know he's capable of it, right? When, when he's really motivated to do so, he can, uh, he can deliver his caucus. Yeah, no, I think that's fair. All right. So I, I didn't mean to sidetrack us on McConnell. I was just legitimately curious about that. Cause I find him one of the more sort of, I know everybody has very strong opinions about him, but I still find him somewhat inscrutable in part because even when you talk to him off the record behind the scenes, he's still Mitch McConnell um, and, uh, and, and very reluctant to reveal any of his thinking. Um, 
and just his, his figure eights about impeachment stuff and Trump, I thought were took some moral flexibility. I I, I would argue. All right, so, but, so back to this argument about the relationship with conservatives and the GOP. I, I'm, I think, I think it was you who originally said this. I'll, I'll, I'll be damned if them let them let them have my party. Um, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to that point of view. I guess the question I have is, as a conservative writer, or I mean, I, I don't like using the word intellectual because it sounds pretentious, but you know, as, as, as. As someone whose job it is, is to tell the truth as you see it, and um, often in written form, there's an inherent tension between wanting to help the GOP and telling the truth. And I'm not saying this about you. I'm just saying this as a general. I recognize it. I think, I think it's real. Um, because the truth is not always on the GOP's side. And, um, uh, and so where do you draw the line? I mean, I, I'll just, I'll just do this as a confessional in the past. I felt much more comfortable not focusing on the shortcomings of the GOP and instead training my fire leftward because I thought that at the end of the day, the GOP was more of a solution than a problem. And that a lot of the people who may have been bad at politics, at least believed what they were saying. I've, after Trump, I've lost that good faith with for the GOP. Um, when I hear the GOP criticized, I don't have the same instinctual response that I had for most of my career, which was, you know, who are you to say that when your side did X? And I'm not saying that form of argumentation is is illegitimate. I mean, I still do it from time. I certainly do it towards tr- pro-Trump people, um, but it's not sufficient. And um, and so I find myself in sort of uncharted waters, not having the same psychological tools and responses that I had for most of my career, because I no longer, I'm no longer as convinced as you are that, that, that the GOP, well, let me put it this way. I agree with you that the GOP is the better option than the Democrats in, in terms of philosophical orientation and whatnot, despite all of its manifest flaws right now. It is just not obvious to me that the GOP gets better without suffering greatly and having and everyone having a great big fight that hurts its chances in this next election or the election after and my response to that is to stop caring about what happens in the next election and just have the arguments um do you think that's wrong do you think that do you have a different approach i mean what do you think of all that i mean a couple of things i mean first of all i think you know i i, I mean i i feel it still very much as my duty as a conservative writer to defend conservatism uh, and that naturally comes to fighting the Democrats more than the Republicans uh, and fighting the left's intellectual class more than the right's. Uh, and there's a kind of weird divide there, too, because if you look at the left's, I mean, the thing about the right's intellectual class, I think, has, has, has you know, uh, and pundit class has been at times corrupted by Trump and Trumpism. But at the same time, when you look at the crazy stuff that happens on the right, it typically bubbles up and, uh, you know, the, the, the problem for the conservative intellectual class is: do you go along with it? Do you get left behind it? Do you fight it? Um, whereas on the left, 
almost all of the crazy stuff comes out of their intellectual and funded class and their academics. And it's like, it's like when, when, when Democrats, you know, like when a Republican politician does something that is dangerous to norms and institutions and constitutional structures and all of that, it, it puts us to a choice, right? Do we defend that stuff or do we defend the stuff we believe in? Um, whereas when a democratic politician does something that crosses those lines, it's almost always because their intellectual class has spent five or 10 years trying to convince them to do it and building up justifications for it. Um, and, you know, I, I mean, I think there are some real problems with the rights intellectual class, both the people in it and the structure of it in various ways. But, but I think it's, it's still that asymmetry still informs a good deal of what I do. Um, you know, no, I think in, that's, in a, that's a very good point. I mean, there is the, the, the fundamental asymmetry of, of the validate, the validating role that mainstream media and academia play for crazy left-wing stuff. Um, and delegitimizing conservative stuff as crazy when it's often it's not is a, is, is a major problem, which is why I haven't gone like Max Boot. Um, cause I still <laughs> believe in conservatism, but anyway, I didn't mean to, but it's a good point. Yeah. I, I mean, I think in terms of, uh, but you know, but I certainly think we, we have an obligation to, you know, fire shots across the bow against our own side when they, you know, when they cross lines to, I mean, one of the most difficult positions I think is when Republicans, you know, sort of uh, when you're in a situation where, you know, Republicans say go to go to four on the scale of one to 10 of doing something bad. And, you know, the question is, do you side with the party line that says, no, we're still at zero? Or do you throw your lot in with the Democrats who say they just went to 15? Right. And so and so very often I'm, I'm in the position of saying, well, actually, yes, this is bad, but it's not nearly as bad as they're saying, because, you know, uh, for various reasons, it depends on the situation. Um, I mean, I think in the whataboutism stuff, I think, you know, I think you have to have a certain level of perspective. I think you have to be able to say, look, you know, sometimes, sometimes whataboutism matters a lot, right? Because if somebody says, well, you're doing something that's terribly unprecedented. Well, no, actually, this is something that happens every four years, right? Like, and, 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 and other times it's a matter of saying, you know what? Um, yeah, the other guy's, do this too, but it's still bad and we shouldn't imitate them. Right. And so, so I think that, I think that bringing in what both sides do and what both sides don't do is very much relevant to informing a debate. But I think it's, I think where it's problematic is the people who just think that this is all you need to do is say, well, you know, you did it first, um, without having some perspective on, wait a minute, well, is this bad or is this good? Um, yeah. And there, there are other forms of whataboutism. I mean, during the Trump years, I can't tell you how many pro-Trump people, you'd criticize something that the president of the United States did, who's a unique actor in our political arrangements. And the immediate response is, well, did you look what the New York Times did? And I'm like, well, the New York Times is not running for president, is it? You know, I mean, there's just, it's apples and, you know, it's apples and, and transistor radios. It's there. It's, it's interesting to criticize the New York Times. I come from a family that considered it one of their core traditions, but, um, the president of the United States is the president of the United States. And, um, the the obsession with sort of media criticism as a substitute for political argument, um, I think, drives a lot of what about us stuff. And it just it's it's not all wrong. It's just 
it's it's sort of like the supply side economics thing. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing about it that wouldn't be made better if you divided by ten. Yeah, I mean, although again, I will push back on that a little bit because I think you know p- part of my attitude towards that also was when you look at Trump on the one hand and you look at sort of the superstructure of the left's you know intellectual and pundit class and the newspapers and Hollywood and and academia and all these things. And and my view was always, you know, Trump Trump's going to be with us for a few years, but all of these people and institutions will still be there when he's gone, long after he's gone, in fact. Uh, be, you know, I mean, I hate to be morbid, but in a way, one of the things that I think about when I think about the party's issues with Trump, um, you know, I, I look at. Uh, I mean, the two historical parallels I keep going back to, even though they're very different personalities, and one is Teddy Roosevelt and how he kind of blew up the Republican Party. Um, And, you know, that problem resolved itself in 1919 when Roosevelt died. Um, And, you know, I've been doing a lot of uh, mid-19th century stuff. Um, And, you know, when the British conservatives blew themselves up over the corn law repeal. Um, and, and that was a, a grassroots type, if you want to call it grassroots for, you know, the English aristocracy, uh, revolt of Disraeli and the backbenchers. And they threw out Robert Peel and, and Peel was kind of the, you know, you would compare him to sort of a Mitt Romney type figure. Right. And, and, um, so they, they sort of beheaded the elite leadership class of their party, and, you know, Gladstone commented that, like, you know, uh, prime minister, former prime ministers are unattached or as dangerous as great rafts floating in the harbor. Um, <laughs> and, and that problem eventually solved itself. And it solved itself when Peel was thrown from his horse and died. Um, and, you know, I would I would like to think that there are solutions to this, uh, to the Republican Party's issues that don't involve sitting around waiting for Donald Trump to get thrown from a horse. Um, but you know, I mean, historically, that has that has been sometimes where these things end is that is that the problem in the party doesn't really go away until the individual does. But I mean, I guess my read of Republican Party history and political history generally is that leadership really does matter a lot. And I think that the party, you know, some of what Trump tapped into was trends in the party and trends in what the voters are thinking. But I think an awful lot uh was very much contingent on trump winning the nomination and i think you know i think had 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 you know whether it's it's cruz or rubio or uh or whomever else had somebody else won the nomination in 2016 i think that an awful lot of the issues of uh the way republicans treat you know uh legal and constitutional and institutional types of things would have been very different um and i think that that you know, if the next Republican presidential nominee is, uh, you know, say Ron DeSantis or somebody, uh, somebody who may be rather Trumpy in some ways, but I think you will have a very, very different set of issues about, you know, things like accepting the results of elections and, um, you know, and 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 abiding by the proper uh, and traditional institutional and constitutional constraints uh, that you know small and limited government people believe in. Um, so I really think it is a lot is contingent on, on that one, you know, man on the horse. I, I, I agree a lot with that. I mean, I, one of the few things that Trump said 
in the during the 2016 campaign uh i think it was in an interview with the washington post editorial board is he said he was asked something along the line that could be butchering the question but it was something along the lines of you have all these divisions in the party all these reservations about you um do you think winning solves all those things and he said yeah i think winning solves a lot of things and just just simply being the guy who becomes the nominee or the president will fix a lot of these problems and at least that's what I took him to be saying. And I think he was right about that. And I, from my perspective, depressingly so, but he was right about that. I mean, if we're going to do historical analogies, though, you know, I mean, the, the places I go are, so I, I, I look at European and American politics, but really European politics. And one of the things I really despise are popular front coalitions where, you know, no enemies to the left or no enemies to the right kind of thing. And, um, and if you look in American history, you know, the places where the role of the conservative versus the Republican, you know, differs somewhat is, um, or forget the conservative, just sort of the sort of principled movement person versus just sort of political operative person would be when the Democrats finally, you know, Arthur Schlesinger and those guys finally realized, holy crap the communists are in danger of taking over our party and they founded Americans for democratic action. And, you know, you had a former vice president of the United States and in Wallace who was, you know, I think reasonable people can differ about whether or not he was actually consciously a Soviet, you know, agent is probably too strong, but I think it is very difficult to disagree that he was a useful idiot surrounded by a lot of communist agents and he was being manipulated. And, um, Schlesinger and those guys said, you know, we may be, li we're liberals, we're not communists, we're not socialists and this far and no farther. And they, they amounted a sort of purge to protect what liberalism meant in America. You can look at what William F. Buckley and Goldwater and, and those guys did vis-a-vis, -vis, um, you know, the Birchers and that crowd is that at some point, and it's, so for me, the, the argument is even if you want the GOP to succeed, it's a pyrrhic victory if it's not succeeding with the right ideas. And the way for you to save the Republican Party in the long haul is to have the arguments early rather than wait until, um, you know, there is, first of all, until both sides have equal measure and then the compromise between, say, the nationalists or whatever term you want to put on it, um, and the fusionists is going to be worse than a, a fusionist victory. And um, the the in, in some ways, it's very much like Trump, where we've now seen for five years now people saying, well, we just have to swallow one more spoonful of fecal cereal, and then we'll get past this guy, and we'll be able to go back to what we think conservatism is. And in the process, we've seen scores of prominent Republicans and pundits embrace ideas that they're not, they're going to have a very difficult time recanting in part because they've convinced themselves that they're true. And, um, I think one of national reviews finest moments, which I had some influence over was that against Trump issue. I just, it's, it's sad that it failed. Um, but, um, that doesn't mean the desire to stop Trump from grotesquely malforming the party wasn't a, both a noble and a prescient one because 
look what look what's happened since. And I just so my point is is is, is there's a certain danger of a certain kind of Colonel Nicholsonism, where you know, like we'll show them, you know, we'll build this railway for the Japanese until you realize what the hell, oh my God, what have I done? And um, I see a lot of that on the right where people think they're helping conservatism in part because the Democrats suck or because the left is really bad. Um, but the, they think they're helping conservatism by helping the GOP. And I'm just not sure that a nationalist, quasi-nativist um, GOP is the ticket for long-term health. And even if it is, I'm not sure it's the ticket for long-term conservative success. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, first of all, I do think it was very much a noble endeavor to resist Trump throughout the primaries. Um, and, and look, obviously, I, you know, went out on a limb and, and refused to support him in 2016. And ultimately, after a lot of agonizing, came out on, I couldn't pull a lever for him this time around. And, um, you know, I mean, at NR, we had a, you know, we, we had sort of a, a variety of writers taking positions on whether or not you could vote for Trump in 2020. And in our, our magazine issue, we had Andy McCarthy wrote the yes, Trump argument, and which he recanted essentially <laughs> after seeing what happened in, you know, and, and Andy proceeded from exactly the same, I think, uh, premises that I did and that Ramesh did in writing his no argument, which was that, you know, uh, that, 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 that it was still institutionally good to have a Republican administration. Um, but that Trump was individually bad. And the question is, how did you, you know, how did you weigh that? Um, uh, I mean, I think certainly one thing that helped in the Trump years uh, was the fact that um, that the MAGA world didn't have a farm team. And so an awful lot of the people that Trump had to bring into his administration and depend on in Congress and in the Senate and in state houses were people who had come up in the pre-Trump party. Um, I mean, of course, as it turned out that, you know, some of the people Trump were, was listening to were people who had come up in the pre-Reagan party. Uh, you know, it is one of my great kind of generational frustrations that we have yet to get to the moment when the kind of the generation uh, like you and I that grew up with Reagan uh, really got to, you know, at least one turn at running the show. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I mean, I my philosophy on on purges, I guess, is, um, you know, certainly at the, in terms of contested primaries, for example. Um, I mean, I, I, I always kind of think that, that any party in any movement, you, you know, you don't purge your way to success, but you should be sort of, you know, on a periodic level kind of purging the very worst people in the party. And it, and, and, and that's always going to be a mixture, right? Some of them are the most ideologically bad or, or extremist or, you know, bigots some of them are going to be crooks and some of them are going to be the most extreme squishes the people who just never ever side with you so you know i think i think taking a few of those out every election cycle for example uh and running a couple of them out of the you know the punditry class and stuff i think that's helpful and i think it's it's sort of you know uh for encouragement to the others to not want to be the worst guys on the list um I, I actually think where the party needs a much more thorough resistance to Trumpism right now 
I mean, I think there's a couple of people in the House and stuff that really richly deserve primaries. And I certainly don't, you know, I want to see Ken Paxton lose his primary. Uh, I would like to see, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gozar out of the House, for example. I was happy to see Steve King and Chris Kobach go down. Um, but where I think there's there's something closer to a three-alarm fire going on is the um, the people who run the state parties who are not elected by, they don't have to get elected by the general electorate. And I think that the, you know, uh, sort of the Kelly Wards of the world, some of these, these state party officials, I think are, are, a lot of them are a good deal more extreme than, you know, than the folks who are actually elected officials. Um, you know, unfortunately we saw in Texas, uh, Alan West, who sort of made a great mess of things, uh, you know, as the state party chair, having having inherited a you know uh, a state party that was very very healthy, uh, and and did a great job. Um, you know, I did a piece in NR uh, interviewing his his predecessor as the state party chair and uh, about everything that they built going into the twenty twenty election. Um, you know, and now West is going off to primary Greg Abbott. Uh, so I, I I think there's a lot more. That really needs to be done directly to clean up the state parties, uh, and I and I think it's it's going to be important for people who are not crazy to maybe get more involved there. You know, it's sort of like the school boards, right? It's it's because these are kind of low turnout, you know, under the radar things. People don't focus on them the way they would focus on, say, a U.S. Senate race. Uh, but it's important. No, I agree entirely. I mean, before we were talking about the importance of leadership, which I agree with. Um, you know, my big hobby horse is that parties should be stronger and take their role much more seriously. And we screwed up in this country when we told parties that they couldn't pick their own nominees anymore. And, um, and I believe we're still the only Western advanced industrialized democracy that does that. Um, although England came close to it and not surprisingly when the, the, um, labor party, dabbled with opening the doors to democratize the process. That's how you got Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and, uh, you know, I would much prefer going back to the smoke filled rooms, but this is, this is such a well-worn topic on this podcast that the, the square on the bingo card is just, is, has been obliterated. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll add to that square by noting that, that, you know, I think the, the, you know, one of the foremost theorists of, of strong parties was Burke. Uh, I mean, Burke, I mean, I, I did a whole big deep dive uh, earlier in the year into Burke's role in sort of unintentionally destroying the British monarchy. Um, and, you know, he was he was really far ahead of his time in the 1780s to be preaching the importance of of strong political parties and strong ideological parties. Right. Right. No, I think I, I think that's right. And, um, you know, it's one of these things I think that the right got wrong. Um, over the last 50 years for entirely defensible and understandable reasons, which was that they were, they were trying to marshal a sort of constructive populism against a sort of calcified liberal me too Republican establishment. And the arguments that they laid down, um, in order to take over the Republican party left them just as vulnerable to uh, non, you know, I don't want to say malignant, but not benign populism to, to take them down. I mean, look, we, both of us had huge disagreements with Boehner and Ryan and 
Cantor and, and McConnell back in those days and all of that. But I remember going around the country in 2010, 2011, uh, being told by members of audiences who came to hear me talk, you know, that we got to get rid of the Republican establishment. We got to purge the Rockefeller Republicans. I was like, you do know that these guys are more conservative than any Republican leaders we have had maybe in U.S. history and that the Rockefeller Republicans went the way of the dodo a really long time ago. And, but the yeah, Tea Party dead. people, what? They're dead. They're, they're yeah. literally dead. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I, I, I suspect that there are fewer Repo elected Republicans who know what a Rockefeller Republican is, <laughs> or I should say, who don't know what a Rockefeller Republican is, there are probably more of them than there are actual Rockefeller Republicans in America. You know, I mean, they're just, it's not a, they're like the Whigs. All right, so in, a, in our time left, enough with the sort of dancing around Republican issues and Trump stuff. Um, as, the, as an intellectual project, where do you see the conservative movement these days? You know, do you think fusionism will survive? Um, should it survive? Yeah, I think so. I think so, but I think it's, I mean, I think you have to remember that fusionism, uh, you know, I, I mean, I think ultimately you have to sort of refuse the elements every generation or so, and they're not necessarily the exact same combinations uh, in every generation. And so I think, you know, I think the idea is, I mean, I, I, I have argued that fusionism is actually much older you know we think of fusionism as this you know bill buckley and frank meyer project that that turns into reaganism as a political project and the thing about conservative ideas is that uh they're very often not new ideas they're kind of an intellectual archaeology of digging up the old ideas and restoring them um so you know my my contention is that the republican party has always been a fusionist party um, and that, you know, if you go back to like the Lincoln and Grant era, um, you know, that that is a fusionist party. It is, you know, Lincoln is probably the most classically liberal. He was certainly not a libertarian, but he was the most classically liberal in his thinking and outlook, probably of any figure in American history. Um, and, you know, and yet the Republican Party of his era is full of people who are much more the kind of traditional conservative, you know, Midwestern Christians, um, American nationalists. I mean, Seward has a much more belligerently nationalist view than Lincoln does. Um, you know, people like Chase are much more kind of religious conservatives. Um, and, you know, the party, I mean, Lincoln had to, and, and he talked about fusionism explicitly about, you know, well, who are we going to fuse with, right? Like, he, you know, he had to work the know-nothings into his party in order to have a governing majority. And he hated the know-nothings. He thought they were terrible. But he cautioned people against speaking out against them publicly because he realized that he needed them against slavery. Um, uh, and even that was, was a change in Lincoln's thinking, right? Lincoln as a Whig had sort of always been sort of, well, he hated slavery, but that was kind of a side issue, right? That it wasn't his major concern. So he himself had kind of shifted in his thinking of what the priorities were. But but that that party, um, you know, and the party shifted back and forth on immigration. I mean, Lincoln was very pro-immigration. Grant was not. Um, you know, I think the I think if you look at trade, if you look at a number of these issues, there were tensions within the party in those days. 
And many of them are the same tensions that resurface in different ways under McKinley, you know, under Harding and Coolidge. Um, and, you know, what I think is an unusual thing is that the conservatives who are sort of um, instinctual, traditional conservatives who are not classically liberal, not libertarian, not but also not moderates, um, you know, and, and, and there's always the party has always had to deal with, first of all, the fact that these different groups are overlapping. Right. There's a lot of people who believe in more than one thing. Um, it, not just politicians, but voters. But I think the idea of a conservative party that is conservative and nationalist in a traditionalist way first and not classically liberal has never really run the show, right? I mean, it, it, the traditional tension has been, well, you know, when you fuse the conservatives with the classical liberals, then you can get the upper hand on the moderates, Right. Whereas otherwise, sometimes the moderates who, you know, moderate Republicans usually are they're kind of a little classically liberal. They're kind of a little libertarian. They're kind of a little conservative and a little nationalist. And, you know, but they they're sort of a little bit of different pieces off the menu. If they weren't taking anything off the menu, they wouldn't be Republicans. Um, but, uh, you know, traditionally, the push pull has been that fusionism gets the conservative side of the party over the moderates. And when fusionism is weak, the moderates are strong. Um, uh, but, you know, I think we have to recognize that this is the first time that the, you know, that people have thought of the idea of having a conservative, you know, nativist nationalist um, party that doesn't include, you know, party governing co coalition within the party that doesn't include the classical liberals and the libertarians. I mean, I guess Teddy Roosevelt would be an example of, in a sense, the traditionalist conservatives allying with the moderates, right? Because because Roosevelt does have, you know, he does certainly have that kind of Jacksonian strain to him, um, but that's allied with progressivism of 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 a sort, and so. I mean, that's what Josh Hawley wants to take the party, right? He wants to take the party back to Teddy Roosevelt, um, which is maybe even a more explicitly ideological direction than what Trump had in mind, because Trump isn't, you know, Trump is is instinctive rather than ideological. Um, it's, I, one of the things I've, so I mean, I have a bunch of responses to all that. I mean, one is like, in fairness to Frank Meyer, which is where I thought you were going to go, you know, Meyer would argue, Meyer, Meyer did not like people talking about fusionism in the way that you did, which is in the way I have often have, right? So basically, it's another way of saying Reagan's three-legged stool, you know? Um, he was, his argument, um, and really M. Stanton Evans' argument, who was like, I think the guy who deserves more credit for popularizing fusionism, was that, it's better to be understood as sort of like the inherent tension or interplay of two traditions within Western civilization going back thousands of years of this, these trade-offs between, you know, liberty and order and freedom and virtue. And sometimes one side is more ascendant than the other. And, um, and that fusionism was really something that runs straight through the Western or the American heart rather than, um, a tactical political orientation. Um, all that said, I thought, you know, it's, I, it's, it's a striking point. I mean, I, I know there was that Washington Examiner cover where it talked about Holly wanting to be Teddy Roosevelt. I think it's sort of, how, how to put this, there is a tendency 
in, in politics, I don't think it's unique to Republicans or conservatives, to pick your heroes based upon how they used power rather than what they used power for. Because, I mean, the guy in our lifetime who was like the biggest TR booster was John McCain. And I have to imagine that John McCain and Josh Hawley agree on very, very little. Not, maybe not nothing. I mean, like McCain liked beating up big corporations and whatnot. And back when he wanted to do it, people like us called him a squish and, you know, a closet rhino and all these kinds of things. And now Holly wants to do it in the name of a more robust, I would say, angrier version of nationalism than what McCain was talking about. And that makes him to be the, the true, authentic conservative. And so I guess my point is when people hearken back and want to be like T.R., I think it has more to do with wanting to have the power and influence that TR had rather than the specific issue set. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like, you know, my, one of my great peeves about Woodrow Wilson was that he was a great admirer of how Abraham Lincoln used power. He just didn't like what he used it for, <laughs> which is the complete moral of inversion of, you know, the conservative point of view, which was, it was a shame he had to do all of these things like suspend habeas corpus, but, his ends, you know, made it understandable and, and, and justifiable. He liked the means. He just didn't like the ends. But I, you know, th this gets, gets to the rub of my problem. So I, I would agree with you that Rabbi Marty always had, had this kind of fusionist element to it, particularly if you're talking about like this sort of three-legged school thing with different, different factions and whatnot. But m my concern is that a conservatism, and this is how I put it in liberal fascism, a conservatism that does not conserve classical liberalism isn't worth conserving. And if classical liberalism isn't part of the equation, then we are simply in an argument about which side uses power for its own ends, regardless of all of the things that Burke and Hayek and all these people had warned us about, about and, and Locke, about the dangers of arbitrary power and the need for um, checks and balances and, and, um, and the rule of law because classical liberalism is the only thing that, as a matter of philosophy, upholds that stuff. I mean, you know, Rich would tell you, Rich Larry would tell you that his version of benign nationalism includes all of that because part of American culture and national culture is, is liberalism. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But if you don't actually invest authority, if not sacredness, and the actual sort of procedural rules of liberalism, um, and instead say, well, it's just in our culture, you're going to lose it because it's the permission structure you get from throwing aside classical liberalism is precisely the permission structure that terrified the founding fathers. You need rules. Like we're, we're rules people and they need to be written down. And if, if it doesn't matter what your ends are, if they violate the, the, the rules, they violate the rules and um, the, the smartest forms of Trumpism reject that. And, you know, you now have this sort of vermilion jurisprudence that says it's results oriented and all the rest that legitimately concerns me. And as a conservative, I think the more fruitful argument is against those people than against the left right now. Um, that doesn't mean I'm going to give up fighting with the left because I think some of the stupid, a lot of the stupidity that comes from the left, like critical race theory and whatnot, gives permission to the right to throw away liberalism. And so it's this, it's this Hegelian, you know, dialectical hot mess. Um, and so you have to sort of fight all fronts. I think Bill Kristol's made a mistake by sort of not picking fights with the left. And I'd say this as someone who rejects his model of being sort of a political player, 
of having one foot in journalism and one foot in activist politics. I like Bill. You know, I, I understand why people get really mad at him, but I, I have this have had this criticism for 30 years. And um, uh, but as an as an intellectual project, it just seems to me that the that you said before, one of the things that hampered Trump is he didn't have a farm team. Well, we are watching right before our eyes at the Claremont Institute in parts of the Hillsdale world um, and uh, Turning Point USA world, all of these places, the development of an illiberal farm team. And I'd like to shut that down, not by purges necessarily, but by through arguments now, rather than wait for them to hit the major leagues. Yeah, no, and I do think that's an important, and look, I've been very much on the the cutting edge of that, particularly with Vermeule and the the common good originalist people and and whatnot. That that you know, and, and frankly, I think one of the great reckonings over all of that, of course, is going to be the Dobbs case, right? Because because we are now the court is kind of backed into a situation. Why do you explain where, what the Dobbs case is? Yeah, so so the, the Supreme Court has taken this case involved that's presumably will be decided, you know, next end of next June. Um, from Mississippi involving a ban on abortions up to, uh, or after, uh, I think it's after 15 weeks. Um, And, you know, I I think a lot of us assumed that the court was going to chip away at Roe, uh, that the new six justice majority was going to try to find ways to gradually undermine Roe and Casey. Um, And, and it's almost impossible to do that in Dobbs. They're either going to have to throw out Roe and Casey, or they're going to have to do something that, sort of entrenches them. Um, and I think that there's going to be sort of Ragnarok within the conservative legal movement over that. And, and look, I mean, you know, I think from the, from the pro Trump perspective, obviously, if they throw out Roe, I think there will be a lot of people who will say, you know what, everything else is forgiven of Donald Trump because he got the three votes on there that ended, you know, the worst human rights abuse in America in our lifetimes. Um, and that that is, you know, I mean, because a lot of us who are in the pro-life movement who legitimately believe that this is, you know, sort of the our generation's equivalent to the fight against slavery, that 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 really is a that's a very big deal. And that is something that's worth making a lot of compromises for. Uh, at the same time, I think you have sort of the, you know, the Vermilions, I think, are going to say uh, if if the court doesn't, you know, if the court essentially leaves Roe in place, if you know, Roberts and Kavanaugh cross the line and say, you know what, precedent is precedent, and that takes precedence over the Constitution. I, I think there will be hell to pay for, you know, sort of uh, Federalist Society style originalism, which has been the greatest and strongest redoubt of classical liberalism. Um, I mean, my argument against them, uh, in part, has been that, look, you know, like, why do you want to try to bench the best player on the team, right? Like, if you look at, other than other than the Second Amendment folks who owe a great debt also to the originalists, um, hardly anybody in the conservative movement has been more successful than Federalist Society originalists, right? I mean, it, you know, you look at the supply-siders, you look at the, uh, the nativists, you look at... Um, you know, the social conservatives, you go down the list, you know, the neocons, you go down the list of every faction and every persuasion in the party, and nobody else has been nearly as successful as the originalists in, you know, and playing the inside and the outside game in selling their arguments to the grassroots, in selling their arguments in elite institutions, in building up, 
a professional team. But at the end of the day, kind of what is this all about? Right. And, and it's it's yes, it's about a big picture question about constitutional legitimacy. But the engine of it has been Roe. Right. The, the fight against Roe is what I think has recruited so many people to originalism, to the idea that, wait a minute, like, how can this be the law when it's not in the Constitution, uh, when it was never passed by the people? Um, and so, you know, I think I think it, it, it it's a very dangerous moment in a sense, but it is a moment when um, if if the court goes in one direction, I think both the pro-Trump case and the pro-classical liberal, pro-originalist you know, case will be celebrating. And on the other hand, there will be all sorts of uh, recriminations there. I know that this is a bit of a, a digression from your question, um, but you know, I, think, I, I do think that, that, that it is important to defend the classical liberal tradition and the classical liberal concepts, but I think that some of that can be done at the um, like everything else at the retail level one at a time, rather than necessarily having to kind of declare a, a general pox on, you know, fusing with people who maybe are, are have some illiberal uh, instincts. Yeah, I, uh, maybe so. But, like, I mean, it sort of brings us back to where we started. The only reason not to have that argument, I mean, there are, there are a couple reasons, but the main reason not to have those arguments on the right stem from essentially a popular front point of view, which is the party needs to come together. I mean, and I have this, I, you know, I've spent some time in the summer talking to some big party donors and like, that's what they want is they just don't want the, let's get the party together. You know, let's worry about the near term. The 22, two elections are going to be, um, hugely important and, you know, let's close ranks and having all these fights isn't worth um, anybody's time. And uh, and I get so the only other argument is, is that some of these people are clearly just punching up to try to get attention and maybe you shouldn't reward them because that's what they want. And um, I think that's true of some people. I don't think it's true for Mule. I mean, he's a very serious dude. Um, uh, but as a purely, you know, speaking as a, you know, as a born-again Nokian superfluous man um the argument against having those arguments um kind of falls apart if you just don't care about the consequences for politics um and uh i you know it's funny i i've written i i took so many positions prior to the rise of trump that everybody agreed with me on um you know i said you know i always used to argue that this I wrote probably for nr 20 times wrote it in my second, my underrated second book, that the great strength of the conservative movement is our willingness to argue amongst ourselves, right? That was the great thing about the whole fusionism debate is that we are constantly arguing about where to draw the lines um, because we understood, we saw our own dogma. And so we could have sincere good faith arguments between the trade-offs between liberty and virtue and freedom and order and all of these kinds of things because we recognized them. We didn't subscribe to the left's view the classically progressive view of the unity of goodness, that there are no trade-offs, right? And uh, and now when I say, look, the, what conservatives should do is have these arguments, people go, how dare you? You know, why can't you, why can't you move on? And uh, it's the same position. It's like healthy intellectual movements shouldn't be afraid of having arguments. And I'll say, say one thing for like the people at American Mind who I 
profoundly disagree with in deep and moral ways, at least they're looking to pick arguments. You know, I mean, Josh Hammer, who I think is a decent guy, he's looking to pick arguments. Um, but the response comes when people like us return fire. It's like, well, why are you, you know, why are you being divisive? Well, you can't have it both ways. You know, either they all should shut up too and get with the program, or we should have the arguments. And um, um, and if the argument and, and if the claim is, is you shouldn't have the arguments because it divides the Republicans or it reminds the American public what a craptacular person Donald Trump is, well, th- those are not hugely persuasive to me. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I'm I'm very much in favor of you know we can walk and chew gum at the same time. I think we can have the internal arguments and without giving up on the project of, you know, remembering who the long-term fight is with uh, on the, on the outside. So I, you know, I think we can do both. Um, We did it in the cold war, right? I mean, you're right. I mean, you can do both. And, and, and look, I think, uh, you know, I think that there's certainly a greater role for us as pundits, as intellectuals, as commentators, as advocates, um, I mean, I guess I always think of myself first and foremost as an advocate. I know that's my lawyer training talking like, you know, I mean, I do some punditry and I do some things that maybe look a little like activism. But at the end of the day, I'm an advocate. I make an argument for a particular point of view, um, you know, but I I mean, I don't what I don't favor at any point is the burn it down, throw all the Republicans out of party, out of power, because, you know, that's that tends towards the kind of one man, one vote, one time thing. Like once you give the Democrats carte blanche power, they change things so that you can never fix them. Um, and, 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 and intentionally so, but. Although the, the, there is an effort out there among Republicans to do this, try to do some of the same things. I mean, this there is, are certainly some people yeah, who, who want to do that. And, and look, obviously the, the idea of structurally entrenching yourself a bit in power with the things you do when you're in power, it's something that, that happens all, all the time happens. Um, but, um, you know, and, 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 and look, I think, uh, I, I do think it's very important for us to go back and ask, you know, what did I believe before Trump? And, you know, Am, am I changing that? And it, and if I am changing that, and I, you know, I've changed my my view a little bit on a few things around the edges, um, both in terms of what I believe and in terms of what things I can stomach, uh, you know, in a coalition. Um, I mean, look, I've never been, um, you know, I have opinions on immigration, but my opinions on immigration are not a high priority thing for me. So it's it's like, you know, can I work with a, a Republican coalition that is an open borders coalition or a seal the wall coalition? I could kind of live with either one. I, you know, neither one of those is where I am. I, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere in the middle of that. Um, but, you know, it, immigration is not a high priority issue for me. So there, there are things that I can look at and say, OK, you know, we'll, we'll compromise in, in, on this in a way that that doesn't isn't exactly my druthers and that doesn't bother me because that's, you know, that's the way grownups deal with politics. But, um, but I think it is important on these kind of procedural issues and, and things to, you know, to constantly go back and ask yourself, did I believe this two years ago? Did I believe this five years ago? And, you know, this is one reason I know people have sometimes good reasons for why they like burn down their past tweets. But, um, you know, I really, don't like the idea of kind of burying the stuff that I wrote. Uh, you know, if, if there's something that I wrote five years ago that I'm disagreeing with now, I should have to, you know, part of the job of a public intellectual is to, 
you know, either you explain why you changed your mind or explain why you haven't changed your mind and your position on two things is reconcilable. Um, but, you know, it's kind of our job to work through those things in public in a way that helps other people work through their thinking. Um, so, you know, I, I do think that having the internal arguments about philosophy, about classical liberalism, I think those are very important arguments to continue having. Um, but, I, you know, I think we just we sort of can't just do the circular firing squad because there's no, still okay. a big world out there. And, and I, I agree with you. I got into a huge, you know, uh, fight with with Bill and some of the other guys over in his shop on this burn it down thing. Because first of all, like it's to me, it's really silly to talk about. Um, should we burn something down that you don't have the capacity to burn down? Right. So uh, already it was this abstract thing. It's, you know, um, should we, you know, should I nuke the moon? Um, it's a fun argument to have, but I do not have the capacity to nuke the moon. So at some point it's, you know, what if Superman could fight the Hulk kind of conversation. But secondly, I find it interesting that the foremost people, um, who were in favor of the burn it all down stuff, um, are now, you know, Liz Cheney's biggest oh. defenders. Well, back then they would have wanted to burn her down too. And, you know, one of the things I've grown to appreciate in the years since um, Trump is how much it just sucks to be a politician and, you know, and why William Rusher used to tell youngsters at NR, look, politicians will always disappoint you. And it's not because they're bad people. It's, although some are, um, it's just because the incentive structure and the reward structure for being a politician are different than what they are for someone who writes, you know, some youngster who you know, foreclosed the opportunity to make much more money doing something honorable and instead decided to become a ideologically motivated, you know, um, you know, writer. And on the, it's funny you mentioned, I wasn't going to get into it, but the, the advocate part, you know, as part of your, your lawyer training, Steve Tellis's book on the, you know, the never Trump movement has some really interesting stuff in it. And, um, one of the points they make in there, yeah, I reviewed that book for, for NR. Yeah. Um, I should go back and look at that. I don't, I don't remember seeing that. Um, like one of the interesting points he makes or they make, cause I can't remember his co-author, um, is that, uh, the conservative legal movement maintained its dignity best or near best through the whole enterprise precisely because they were used to as a matter of profession and training to compartmentalize the downsides of having really crappy clients <laughs> and to stay focused on the, the goals without getting distracted by, um, and it, by, by getting distracted by, you know, the theatrics. It was by nature, lawyers understand the, the testing points between transactionalism and principle, and they know how to navigate that better than a lot of people do. And I, I think it's a good insight into why, you know, even some of the lawyers who work for the Trump administration came out, I mean, I, I'm sure the Democrats are very mad at them, but, you know, came out looking okay, particularly in, in these books that are starting to come out. Yeah, I mean, and even somebody like Bill Barr, who obviously there's a lot of folks have very serious axes to grind it. But, I, you know, I think, I think you can look at sort of Barr and, and you know, and, and McGon and Jeff Sessions and, uh, you know, and, and some of the other folks. And, and you know, you can, they can certainly mount a defense for what they did. Um, and, and how they did it and how it's consistent with the stuff they already believed in. 
Um, and yeah, the Salton and Tellus book, I mean, I think they, a lot of that is that they did a kind of sociological examination of the difference between, say, the national security conservatives and the, uh, you know, the talk radio folks and the, um, uh, you know, and, and the, uh, and the lawyers. Um, I, I mean, I think that, that, um, I mean, I do think that the legal culture, yeah, gives you a, a sense of how to, how to, how to, um, you know, how to maintain your principles, uh, even when you're, uh, cause you know, I mean, look, it, as a lawyer in court, you know, you have to, you have to defend your client and you're going to say things, you know, that are not consistent with what maybe a different client might ask you to say, but you also have to have a kind of an outer limit on where you're not going to lie, really right? go. Yeah. Because you, you'll be in front of this judge again tomorrow. Right representing somebody else uh and the judge is going to remember and and you know and that's that's i think that is i think part of how we have to think about our jobs uh because you know the same people who were writing um you know when bush was the president uh and trump and you know a lot of the same people are still going to be making these arguments when the next republican president comes around um and and look i mean the burn it down thing i think yeah, I mean, it's not just Liz Cheney, too. I mean, Mitch and, and you know, so many of these people who who turned out to be kind of the key. OK, yeah, they didn't remove Trump from office, but uh, the people who who stood up and said no when Trump was pressuring them on the election, uh, a lot of them were people that the burn it down people would have wanted out of office, uh, you know, and, and Kemp and, and Doug Ducey and, and uh, Raffensperger and you know, the heads of the, the Michigan Republican uh, caucuses in, in, in the state legislature. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of people who, who, you know, they stood up and said, you know what, I want Donald Trump to be president. I voted for Donald Trump to be president. But, you know, the votes are the votes. Right. Right. All right, my friend, we've gone a little long and I, I have a heart out. So um, I could do this for a while and we'll definitely have you back. Um, I look forward to the, uh, the, 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 the hate tweets from both the left and the right uh, for uh, either aimed at you or me for coming on. Um, but it's always great to talk to you. And uh, thanks for being here. Great being here. Okay. So um, Dan has left the studio and uh, um, I anticipate that for some people, this was way too in the weeds or way too uh, um even-tempered about some issues that make a lot of people very angry one way or the other. Uh, but that's the way it is. Um, yeah. So about last week, I want to apologize. So, uh, last Friday I record, well, I thought I recorded a full solo remnant and, um, sat at my desk. It's like six 30 in the morning. Cause I had to get on the road, um, uh, for a vacation trip, um, to upstate New York with friends and recorded the whole thing, realized about a third of the way through that I hadn't started the backup, which normally isn't a problem. But uh, it turns out that the entire solo remnant uh, was, were just sound waves that went off into the universe. And maybe at some point, some alien race will find them and reconstitute them and beam them back to us. But I, I, I highly doubt it. Um, so they're just lost. I had responses. I mean, it's in some ways it's maybe for the best that it didn't, didn't go out. Cause I had, um, given how cranky I was in the morning and 
I can't even remember the various fights and perturbances that were um, in my head at the time, or I can't remember all of them, but um, there are a lot of people taking pot shots at me and I responded to some of them and it's probably best that I didn't. Um, 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 but regardless, I did not know uh, Caleb and, and Ryan and those guys, they, they texted me, but I was um, driving and didn't see the text messages and then they got kind of buried up the queue and I did not know until much later that uh, I just had not, re that, that the audio just was blank on the, on the main recording thing. And so there was no podcast there and I apologize for that. I really, you know, there's sometimes I can't hit my schedule and have to get a sub, you know, which is what I did last week. And thanks to Chris Starwalt for, for subbing for me. Um, but there's really no excuse given the nature of technology for me not to be able to at least get in a solo thing on Fridays. I just didn't know that I hadn't. Um, and I also just didn't know, um, how, much I liked being away from everything. And, um, so I didn't even write a second column last week and I didn't write the G file, um, which I expected to do. Um, and so now I got to figure out given my schedule for the summer, um, for the rest of the summer, how I don't miss any more obligations because I hate, hate, hate missing obligations. Um, and, uh, so I want to apologize to everybody for that. That was not my plan. I was going to husband my resources in terms of taking days off for later in August when I'm driving my daughter to um, college on the West Coast. Um, at which point my wife and I will all of a sudden be empty nesters, something that we haven't really put a lot of thought into. Um, and it's only dawning on me how momentous that will be. Um, I hope my wife doesn't respond by getting like seven more dogs. Um, though I'm not ruling it out. And um, anyway, uh, I promise to be more, uh, transparent and at least let people know what's going to happen. I mean, I know people aren't, ex aren't exactly organizing their lives around my production schedule, but I feel particularly, you know, now that we've launched the dispatch that I owe, um, you know, I've always had a good work ethic, but I feel like, you know, hitting my deadlines is even more important now because I'm trying to model behavior. Uh, with all that said, um, uh, thanks for listening and um, I'll see you next time no you won't this is a podcast Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.